Good morning. We are continuing in Genesis, chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of the other sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dream and for his words. And he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowed down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and brothers indeed come to bow down? ourselves to the ground before you and his brothers were jealous of him but his father kept the saying in his mind now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem and Israel said to Joseph are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem come I will send you to them and he said to them here I am so he said to them now go See if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them. Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we, we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of the hands, their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to him, Shed no blood. Throw him down into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. 
Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, We have, we have found, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put a sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let us pray. God above, we come to you as a congregation in confession. We have not loved one another as we should. We have not told of your good works to our neighbors as we ought. We have settled for lesser things to satisfy us than you, Lord. And for this and for our sins, together we confess. And we throw ourselves upon your mercy, Lord. And we are grateful that through the blood of Jesus and his resurrection, that there is restoration, that there is hope, that there is healing. Lord, thank you that you are gracious, giving us more, so much more than we ought to have, than we deserve. And Lord, being merciful, not giving us what we do deserve. Lord, in this time, it is our prayer that you would speak to us through your word, that you would open our eyes, reveal truth, and fight the lies, the delusions that we have and cling to. Lord, we want to glorify you. We want to praise you. Show yourself. Amen. Good morning. I'm excited to start the final section in Genesis. Remember, every section of Genesis starts off with this formula, the generations of, and finally our passage here begins the generations of Jacob. And it quickly becomes clear that 
This section and the following will predominantly trace the life of his son Joseph, with Reuben and Judah and the sons of Jacob collectively making up the major supporting roles. So previously the story of Isaac was about his sons Jacob and Esau. Now the story of Jacob is about his sons. Joseph we were introduced to in Genesis 30 at his birth. His name means Ad. It says, Genesis 30, 24, she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. It was the grace of God to miraculously provide this son to Jacob's favorite and barren wife because the future of the entire family would depend on him. And so there's this foreshadowing uh, for this element when at his birth in Genesis 30, 25, it, it signals the moment that Jacob will decide to return to Canaan as though this son born to Rachel was what they had been waiting for all along. Now, now they can move on. They've received the son that they were waiting for. And so this section in Genesis actually marks a, a very dramatic shift in the literature, um, in its style. It introduces new major themes, uh, which we'll look up as they come up, but it also develops some of the key themes that we've seen throughout Genesis in, in some very important ways. And so I want to introduce you to that this morning as we enter. It's almost like starting a new book in how really different the story of Jacob is to the rest of Genesis. So it is still part of Genesis and very connected as well, though the predominant theme that we have seen throughout Genesis is God's sovereignty. If there's anything really that you could say in one sentence that Genesis is about, it's about God's sovereignty. Our God, Ephesians 1.11, works all things according to the counsel of His will. And it's not just about God's sovereignty because I really like talking about God's sovereignty. Genesis really emphasizes all the way through, right from the creation account, which asserts that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is nothing like the false gods of pagan myth. Genesis insists that God has no nemeses. Even his enemies are the works of his own hands. His, his plans cannot be thwarted because he relies on no other power than his own to accomplish his will. And so this remains the chief theme in the account of Jacob's sons. as God's hidden and decisive power works in and through, but also against human agency and power, revealing his sovereignty through both dreams and his providence in things that seem very mundane and natural. And under that theme of God's total sovereignty, Genesis is also the history of God creating a people for himself. If there was to be a people that would exist for God's purposes, who would be righteous ones, God would have to create them. And so following the first 11 chapters of primordial history and God's second righteous condemnation of all human nations at the Tower of Babel, God elects one man, Abraham, choosing to make from him a new nation and promises him that through his descendant, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so from that point, we saw God reject Ishmael in favor of Isaac, whom he chose before his conception. And as the theme is intensified, we saw God choose Jacob instead of Esau, Romans 9.11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. 
So this theme is intensified throughout Genesis. Now all of a sudden in the Joseph narrative, uh, it develops this theme in a surprising new way. Completely different, although continuing to bring the same message, it adds something new. As Joseph is chosen by God from among his brothers, just like the previous brothers were chosen from among their brothers, but Joseph instead is chosen on behalf of his brothers. So this is a surprising new event. Previously, we've had God reject one brother and choose one brother. Now, among Jacob's sons, Joseph is chosen by God very clearly, but on behalf of his brothers, who are also chosen by God. In fact, the first audience would have understood clearly that the most important person in this story, by virtue of who his descendants are, is Judah. So when the first audience looks back and sees this story, they're thinking, well, our people had to come from Judah. And so as Judah is rescued, we look in the story of Joseph, how does that come about? Well, God chooses to make Joseph a sort of a savior to rescue Judah, who's more important. The, The original audience knows that the messianic king, David, would come from the line of Judah. And then the New Testament reader knows that that isn't even the half of it. Jesus, the descendant which was promised to Abraham and to Eve before him, according to his human nature, would be born to the line of Judah. And so this takes this uh, theme of election in, in a dramatically uh, new way, even as it develops it, he is chosen uniquely by God, on behalf of those others who are also chosen by God. Understanding this unique election of Joseph is a key to our reading because Joseph is characterized in this entire narrative as an obedient son and, Genesis 41, 39, a discerning and wise ruler. In fact, Joseph's behavior in these chapters emphasizes the main themes of biblical wisdom literature. Think Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Themes like avoiding the immoral woman, Proverbs 5. Or storing up in times of plenty against future needs, Proverbs 6, 6 6-8. The wisdom literature also assures believers that though the wicked may prosper for a time, it will not last. And that God will bring good out of evil and joy out of pain. If not in this life, then certainly in the life to come. And so this is why the book never faults Joseph, not even once. It's not that he was sinless, for no one is, but rather that the purpose of the story is to focus on wisdom as it is exemplified in Joseph, whom God has uniquely chosen to rescue his chosen people. Obedience was the mark of Joseph. That doesn't mean we will not be able to learn from Joseph's obedient and faithful behavior, because when we are in Christ, we are made righteous, as Mark has talked about already this morning, but it is that we cannot immediately relate to Joseph in this story. You know, we we quite commonly in biblical stories relate immediately to the hero of the story, but we are not the hero of our story. We are the brothers, So Jesus is the hero of our story, who, like Joseph, walked in wisdom and perfect obedience and was uniquely chosen by God to be a rescue to the rest who are chosen by God, all who come to faith in Christ Jesus. So everyone who aspires to godly living 
should observe in Joseph as we go through these 11 chapters how wisdom leads to success in God's plan. But we must first see how Joseph took part in the rescue of his family through wise obedience, just as Christ Jesus perfectly lived out the wisdom portrayed here on behalf of all of God's people. When we see ourselves as Joseph's brothers, the gospel in the final chapters of Genesis becomes clear. There is one elect on behalf of the elect in order to save them. God has provided a rescue through his chosen one. And and just as we've seen throughout the rest of Genesis, God is faithful to his covenant people regardless of their morality. And he makes the most surprising choices of people, doesn't he? Electing a family divided by favoritism, immaturity, jealousy, and vengeance. And, And yet he will bring about his purposes through them and in the process will bring about their radical transformation and restoration. And so, uh, very important to note, it is not Joseph whose character is transformed through the narrative. It is the wicked brothers who we will see change in their behavior as they begin to understand what God is showing them and that God is being faithful to them even through their choices. In the previous chapter, the descendants of Esau quickly came to rule a prolific and prosperous nation. This is what Genesis 36 is all about, this long genealogy about Esau and the descendants of Esau who are all kings and chieftains and a massive family. It all happens very quickly. But Jacob's family must be redeemed before they rule. God will not leave his chosen miscreants as they are, but refines them in the furnace of affliction, Isaiah 48, 10, and 11. Another theme is that God is faithful to his covenant people regardless of their morality, but Genesis will always insist that there are serious consequences for sin. And so we need to have both of these things. Is God going to have his way despite our terrible behavior? Yes, absolutely. He is sovereign. Does our behavior then not matter? No, that's ridiculous. Our behavior totally matters. There are serious consequences for sin. And so in God's sovereign justice, people reap the penalty of their evil deeds. And we're also going to see that throughout. This is often shown most clearly through what is called talionic justice. Now, why would we talk about this? This is the punishment that fits the crime in such a clear manner that the connection cannot be missed. And so we saw this quite a lot between Jacob and Laban, where the deceiver is deceived and vice versa. Talionic justice is when you get exactly what was coming for you. It's that kind of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth justice. So in the Bible, when we see someone sin, and then the result of their sin is clearly that sin backfiring, them getting exactly the same results back to them, them being treated in exactly the same way. This is called talionic justice. Uh, And the reason why it's here. It doesn't mean that God always or or even usually disciplines his people by causing them to experience their own sin perpetrated against them, but it is a way that the biblical authors make it clear that despite God's merciful faithfulness, working all things out for good, our choices still matter, and that God's people still experience the consequences of their sin, some of the consequences of their sin anyway, as loving discipline. 
So keep these themes in mind as we begin working through the final section of Genesis. God's sovereignty, working all things according to the counsel of his will. And then under that theme, in his sovereignty, God is creating a people for himself, chosen to receive his covenant love and faithfulness, despite their immoral behavior. And then three, that in his sovereignty, it is not as though their behavior doesn't matter. There are serious consequences, and he will produce transformation in their lives through loving discipline and the things that they suffer. Remember Matthew 24, 13, it is only the one who is made faithful who will be saved. And so part of God's work in saving these people is not just going to make sure that they don't have consequences, but is going to save them from the worst of the consequences of their sin by allowing in discipline for them to receive some of the consequences of their sin so that they will endure to the end as faithful followers. And finally, in God's sovereignty, they are experiencing God's mercy and grace through the saving work of his unique elect. In this case, wise Joseph, who also introduces the biblical theme of God's obedient suffering servant. So Joseph doesn't do anything wrong in these passages. In fact, uh, when people, you know, if if your Sunday school lesson or the the movie you watched one time has Joseph doing something bad um, or being like a bratty tattletale or something like that, that's purely artistic license. In the story, the narrator never once takes Joseph to task for anything. Now again, not that he was perfect, but this is how the Bible's portraying him as this wise one, obedient son, who then rescues the wicked brothers. And so this leads us right into the way we begin to see Jesus. The Bible is just so amazing in the way it all fits together and continues to just build on these same themes over and over again. So let's read uh, again uh, verse 2, Joseph being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. And so this is actually to say that Joseph was tending his father's flock as an assistant to his older brothers, and and he reported them to Jacob. Now, can you guys give me a show of hands, just so I know if I'm off base? How many of you have had a, a picture of Joseph where he was kind of like this braggart or a bratty tattletale with his brothers? Anybody? Like he, they kind of hate him because he's kind of, he brings it on himself a little bit, right? Well, if you look at the previous and following chapters, you will find out that Joseph's brothers are not good guys. They are violently wicked and sexually immoral men. And so while the narrator blanks here on exactly what Joseph reported, we can only imagine it wasn't great. And we only know that Joseph dutifully reported their behavior to his father. Then verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, again, you'll have to throw out everything you know about this story from Joseph in the Technicolor Dreamcoat or the King of Dreams movie. In Hebrew, the robe is not described as multicolored. 
uh, at all, but is described as a royal robe, full length and long sleeved. The same terminology is used for the apparel of a princess in 2 Samuel 13, 18. So Joseph has this princess robe. Not exactly. He's got, he's got this royal robe. This was regal apparel, indicating that Joseph is now management, not labor. He's got these long-sleeved robes. So he's not out there like, I'm not going to do the stuff. I'm going to watch you do the stuff, and I'm going to report back to Dad. Is essentially Joseph's job now. He's part of the management team. And so by bestowing this robe, Jacob is not just saying that he favors Joseph or that he loves Joseph the most, but he is publicly designating Joseph as the next ruler of the family. And so if, you, if you've been with us in Genesis, Reuben has already disqualified himself. He's the eldest son. And so now Joseph is choosing to take the birthright from Reuben, his eldest, in order to give it to the firstborn of his beloved wife, Rachel. What is interesting is that Joseph will receive the double blessing of the firstborn. We see this in 1 Chronicles 5, 1-2. But, as has already been stated, we already know, the rulership of Israel will not pass on to Joseph, but to Judah. Joseph will actually come to rule in Egypt instead. And so Joseph's, Joseph never does, Joseph's family never does rule in Israel, but he does get the double blessing of the firstborn when Jacob uh, adopts, essentially, Joseph's two sons. And so in the 12 tribes of Israel, there are two tribes that are Joseph's. So uh, I didn't write it down. Ephraim and Manasseh are Joseph's tribes. So he gets a double blessing in Israel. Like the Cain and Abel story, the brothers turn their hatred towards the one who has shown favoritism. And the seed of that hatred will produce murderous intent once God's own choice of Joseph is revealed and added to the fact that Jacob has chosen him. So now Jacob has chosen Joseph. He will rule. Now God will affirm that he has also chosen Joseph to rule. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered round and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Again, there's no warrant for saying that Joseph shared the dream out of arrogance or boasting. The narrator does not make that point. Only that recounting the dream brought on further hatred. I was shocked at this, but there is no record ever in the Bible of an Israelite failing to understand a dream. And whenever a dream is in need of an interpretation, it was made known to the world through one of God's people. Jesus makes it clear in both Matthew 13, 13 and Luke 8, 10 that those who do not belong to him will not understand his teaching. And then by contrast, when some do understand and believe, John 10, 26 and 27, it is because they are among those who belong to him. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. 
The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And so the brothers, though steeped in wickedness, though they are violent and sexually immoral men, they hear, they understand, and they believe God's message because they belong to him. They believed the dreams, but they hated Joseph for it. It, The dreams say that at some future point, they will become Joseph's subordinates and subjects, and he their superior. And it isn't just because of Jacob's favoritism or because of Joseph's mannerisms that they hate him. It is because of the dream. Like many today, the brothers are offended by the doctrine of God's election, that God deals justly with all, but he shows mercy and compassion to some. He declares, Exodus thirty-three nineteen, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so it's God's choice of Joseph to rule that promotes discord among the brothers, which only serves then to bring about God's purposes. Because if he hadn't created the discord among the brothers by announcing his purposes, then they wouldn't have sold Joseph into slavery. And then he wouldn't have rescued them in the end. And so we see that God is sovereign in all of this, and even in the way he reveals his will is designed to bring it about. In the same way as God's supreme and uniquely elect, Christ Jesus, who was hated. And so too will we be hated if we are in Christ, John 15, 18 to 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So this is a theme throughout all of Scripture. To be chosen out from among others by God, to be shown this favoritism, leads to anger and hatred, and in some cases even murder. Now it's important to point out that in the New Covenant, in the New Testament now, All believers share the ministry of God's unique elect. Now, God's unique elect is not today Joseph, but Jesus Christ, the the final Israel, true Israel. God rescued Jesus, or not rescued, God rescued all of his people through Jesus. But now we are not just those who are saved by Jesus, but if we are in him, indwelt with his own spirit, it is to accomplish his purposes. And so we all share in this ministry that Joseph had of being one who is chosen to be a rescuer for others. 1 Peter 2.9, we are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so in the New Testament, we're not just those who are passively waiting for Jesus to save, but if we are in Christ and saved by him, we then share in his ministry of being one who is saved, chosen for a purpose. This dream is then paired up to show Genesis 41-32 that the thing is fixed by God And God will shortly bring it about. Verse 9, he dreamed another dream. 
and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now you see again, every time one of these Israelites hears the dream, they're like, I know what you're talking about. I know what you're saying, and I don't like it. Nobody's like, what could that dream mean? Every time God gives a dream to someone who's not one of the Israelites, they have to get someone. We need an interpreter. Remember, Daniel's interpreting for kings. Joseph's interpreting for kings. Happens many times in the Bible where God will even mislead pagan kings by giving them dreams. And they don't understand what the dream means, and it drives them to do something that serves God's purposes but doesn't help them out very much. But when these Israelites hear the dream, they're like, I know what that means. God speaks in a way that his people understand, but that others do not. Now, while the first dream might point to the way in which Joseph's leadership would involve food, the second dream adds an important element which the brothers ignore. The sun and moon and stars are the symbols here, and they're significant in that they all symbolize rulership to the original audience. And so this is why there are so many biblical prophecies, literally dozens throughout the Bible, starting right through the Old Testament, where uh, the sun and the moon are being darkened or falling out of the sky and, and stars are falling from the heavens. And, and it's not that that happened like a dozen times throughout church history. It's not like that happened in the Old Testament when all these prophecies were fulfilled. When the Bible talks about the sun, moon, and stars falling out of the sky, it's about rulership. It's talking about uh, it symbolizing changes in government or rulership. So we, we don't believe as Christians that the stars all fell out of the sky a dozen times already and that the sun and moon were blotted out. We know that when the prophecies are talking about these things, it's that governments and, and rulerships changed. Now, in their anger at the supremacy of Joseph, the brothers missed the point here. They missed the point of this dream that their entire family was destined to be exalted by God through this uniquely elect one. In the fact that the sun, moon, and stars were all bowing down to one of the stars, they failed to understand that they're all being portrayed by God in this prophetic dream as those who've been exalted to rule and reign with him. Verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Earlier, Joseph had brought back an honest report of his brothers, which perhaps prompts Jacob to send him out now again in his new managerial outfit. And, and notice again that Joseph is totally characterized by obedience to his father. His answer, here I am, basically means I am at your service. 
It is the answer of Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Samuel, Isaiah, and in the New Testament, Ananias, when God gives them a command. So this is quite a, a, an astounding statement here. When Jacob gives a command and Joseph says, here I am, it means I will do whatever you tell me to do. I am your servant. And out wandering in the fields, Joseph just happens to randomly chance upon a man who is able then to direct him to his brothers. Now, there is no break at all here in the chapter. In fact, there is no break in this narrative for 11 chapters. This is all one story which works together to build on these major themes that we've talked about this morning. So this is just an introduction. And if you're not understanding what I'm talking about, we have 10 chapters to get there. So each of these themes is going to be developed throughout the story of Joseph. But there is one... uh, This last seemingly coincidental occasion introduces the last major theme in the Joseph narrative, one of the most important themes of the Joseph narrative that I want to have us take a look at this morning. There is a a massive shift here as we begin the final section of Genesis in the way God exercises his sovereign control over all things and in the way he communicates his will. So regarding communication... Joseph has just seen the first dreams in the Bible where God does not speak. Every other time, up until now, if there's a dream, God speaks. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the dominant means of God's revelation is what's called theophany, which is that he appears and speaks audibly. So for for the first section of Genesis, when, when God has something to communicate, what happens? God shows up. God says what he needs to say. The people all heard the voice of God and they know exactly what he's talking about. In Genesis 12 to 37, this changes. There's a transition to speaking through dreams and visions. And now, and in the remainder of Genesis, there is a transition away from any direct communication at all. And God works predominantly through silent providence. So Joseph just happens to wander into a man, and the slavers just happen to walk, come across at just the right time so that Reuben is unable to come and rescue him, but they, he instead is, is sent into slavery. Uh, this happens all the way through the story of Joseph, God's providence at work. God just, through what seem to be random events and natural happenings, mundane means, now things are just happening to bring about God's purposes. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm still talking about communication. These three stages of Genesis then resemble three parts of the entire Old Testament in the way that the Jews had them separated into the Torah, the law, where God speaks directly to Moses in theophany. He sees his glory. He hears his voice. And then in the prophets... God now speaks in dreams and visions. In fact, he even tells Joseph's brother and sister that only to Moses do I speak directly face to face. Others will hear in dreams and in visions. And then, after the prophets, we move into the writings like Ruth and Esther and and all these amazing stories where God is, is barely mentioned in some of them. Now, once again, he's working mostly through providence. 
Things are just working out according to His purpose and through the means of, of people. And even when people are against what God wants to do, He just somehow foils them without really stepping into it supernaturally. And so even as there's this shift in God's communication with His people, there is also a drastic change in His observed activity. Now, I'm not saying God changes, don't get me wrong. But there's a change in the way God's activity is observed in the Bible. Up until now in Genesis, God has been the most active personality. With the the narrator describing his supernatural activity literally hundreds of times. God has been, the, the most of the verbs in Genesis have been applied to God. He's always the one doing, creating, making, talking, judging, right? Now, God all but disappears. In the next 10 chapters, the only activity that's explicitly linked to God is that he was with Joseph. And in this chapter that we've just read, God is not even mentioned. We only know that that Joseph's dreams were prophecies from God because they came true much, much, much later in his life. So Joseph has these dreams. God's not mentioned. And while the purpose of God is announced in the dreams at the beginning of the narrative, God does not appear, speak, act, or intrude, but he still guards both the dream and the dreamer, bringing all of his purposes to fruition through what seem to be coincidental and mundane means. It's only at the end that God's activity is discerned when Joseph announces it to his brothers. So Joseph may have known all along. He's this wise and obedient son. He says, uh, Genesis 45, uh, verse 7, and the first part of verse 8, God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And in Genesis 50, verse 20, the the key theological statement of this whole part of the Bible, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. These passages are the major theological statements which interpret the entire narrative. It's, It's over a dozen chapters. And it's only in these two places that the author makes the claim that God's leadership, though hidden, is the real subject of the narrative. The rest of the Joseph account then is bracketed between the dreams of this chapter and his assertion that God was at work the entire time, even though it went unnoticed. Until this announcement, the purposes of God are at work in hidden and in unnoticed ways. But the ways of God are nonetheless reliable and always accomplish his purposes. Earlier in Genesis, the purposes of God are wrought by abrupt and miraculous action, signs and wonders, fire and brimstone. And these events take place in far greater frequency at the beginning of a new covenant, When the revelation of God comes in divine intrusions, a loud voice with thunder and lightning. So it was with his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When God created a new family and tribe for himself, a tribe that previously did not exist. There were no Israelites. There were uh, Arameans. And then in Jacob, there's now a new tribe. 
And so God reveals himself in these amazing ways and speaks audibly. So it was with Moses when he made a new covenant with the newly formed nation of Israel. And so it was also in the New Testament with the inauguration of a new covenant in Christ's blood. So each of these times that there's a new covenant introduced, every one of these times, there's this massive outpouring of supernatural activity, God speaking audibly, the very words of God, you know, and these, then it tr- kind of trickles down into dreams and visions, and then silence. In these times of initiating a new covenant, God draws attention to what he is doing in dramatic ways, signs and wonders that cannot be missed, so that there is no doubt that no one besides God could have accomplished these things. So these are, these are showstoppers, right? The, the new covenant is inaugurated, and God makes sure nobody can miss it. But after these initial showstoppers, the purposes of God are no longer regularly wrought by abrupt action or divine intrusions, but by the ways of the world which seem to be natural and continuous, what we call providence. Now, one of the most important things that you can understand this morning from this entire message is that this does not mean that God is any less at work. That's not why the Bible describes God first doing mighty signs and wonders and then pulling back into almost being in the background. Three different occasions. That's not why. (laughs) This doesn't mean God's not still mightily at work. God is not pulling away. He's not fading back as a wallflower. He's not less involved. Rather, his involvement is even more prolific than the signs could ever fully convey. And so there's a progressive revelation in Scripture. People start out not knowing very much, and they know a little bit more, and they know a little bit more, all the way up and through into Christ Jesus. And part of the progressive revelation of how God works is initially people get these big showstoppers that show up in front of them like, it's God! You know, Moses is walking along, and there's a bush on fire, and it's talking to him. He knows, hey, this isn't normal. I'm going to take a detour here and go talk to the bush, see what it wants. He, there's this, this showstopper. There's the great sign and wonder. We know it's God who initiated this work. But that is not enough information. That is not the full revelation that we have received as believers. If that was how God worked, if our idea of how God works is through signs and wonders, we would not have the maturity of knowing that God's always at work in absolutely everything that's happening all the time. The move away from dramatic signs and audible voices in the Joseph narrative is designed to help us to understand that that continued signs and wonders and miraculous blessings would leave us thinking that those specifically are the times when God was at work. These chapters introduce a new perception of the reality that God is always at work in all things. This point is made most succinctly in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things. You know, how many of you can remember that time that God worked mightily in your life? 
How many of you look back fondly on your conversion and the way God just seemed so real in that moment and you felt like he was speaking to you or changed your heart or blessing you? I know at my conversion, I wept and then God blessed my socks off just like supernatural provision and gave, you know, gave me things that I couldn't have dreamed of and I knew this is God. When we think of supernatural blessings and amazing things where the coincidences worked out so well in our favor as the times that God was mightily at work, we've missed the plot. And this is oftentimes, church, why we struggle in our patience and we struggle with anxiety and trust. And all of these areas of sin in our lives are because we have this idea of God working in specific instances, which is certainly what happens at the beginning of Revelation. Not the book of Revelation, but in God revealing himself. So as God's revealing himself, he starts out with these huge deal things, these showstoppers. So the people are like, that's God. I know God. There's a God, and he's working, and he's working on my behalf. I'm, he's going to be my God. But then what needs to happen as we grow in Christian maturity is understand, hey, he wasn't just working there. He was working there and there and there and there and there, all around that and the way that even the fact that he brought me to this point of understanding that I had sin and even this, this point that he brought me to understand that, that I, I couldn't save myself, all these things that were happening all the way along were all the mighty work of our God. And so Romans 8.28 tells it most clearly, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, those chosen ones, all things, not just miraculous provision, not just mundane provision, not only good things, but also bad things. The hard time, the broken relationship, even your sin and your foolish decisions and your hard-heartedness and your slow coming to God, all the attempts of enemies to harm you, all things are worked out by God for your good. Do you see how this is a growth in maturity of understanding? See how this is an increase of revelation? This is not a low view of God. This is a high view of God. I grew up charismatic. We had this idea that those of us who really trusted God and really believed that he was powerful, we really liked signs and wonders and miraculous things. But a deep, mature understanding of God's work is that there is nothing going on right now that God is not intimately working through to bring about for your good. That hardest person in your life to get along with. The most difficult child you're going through right now. We sing the song, Blessed Be Your Name, You Give and Take Away. And it's a great song, comes right from Scripture. But I think sometimes we still think, yeah, sometimes God blesses us and sometimes he doesn't. That's not the case. The song is about the fact that he is always blessing us, sometimes through really hard things, sometimes through really difficult people, sometimes through illness and trials of many kinds. And so Joseph and his family are blessed by God through some pretty terrible things. The brothers hate his guts. He's shown favoritism by his father. The brothers are wicked. I mean, think how wicked you have to be to sell your own brother into slavery. And then more bad things happen to Joseph, and more bad things happen to Joseph. And ultimately, he says at the end, you didn't do this to me. God did this to me. You were wicked. He doesn't, give, he doesn't let them off the hook. This was wicked. And they will have consequences, as we'll see. But God's working it all out for good. The main point here is that the ways of God are constantly at work and always successful, regardless of human attitudes or actions. Not that human action is irrelevant, but that it is impotent 
to resist the plan of God. I want to, read, I want to say that again. God is successful in what he's trying to do, regardless of human attitudes or actions, not because they are, irre- are irrelevant, but they are completely unable to resist God's purposes. This also resists the humanistic deism, which believes in a God who has no hands but ours to do the work. You know, the, the, the opposite of people who are always demanding a sign and think that God can't possibly be at work unless there's something supernatural going on are the people who have such a low view of God that God can't accomplish anything, and we're the ones that have to accomplish things for his purposes. And so both of these are guarded against. These lies about God are, are that he only works in the supernatural or only works through good is a lie about God that, def- that lowers our estimation of him. But also is a lie about God that God so back, backed off of things that now he's no longer working those ways. Do you see how people, instead of understanding in maturity how this means that God's so much more involved, they think, well, we haven't seen a miracle in a while. We haven't felt the presence of God in a while. He didn't speak to us in a while. He must have gone away. I guess we just have to kind of go do it on our own. I guess we got to pull up our bootstraps and make things of God happen. God can only do things through us. We are his hands and feet, and he can't accomplish anything else. See how that's another terrible view of God. And what we learn in Joseph defends against both. God does not only work in the supernatural. In fact, what God does will always be called natural. If God were to always work in the supernatural, we would uh, just call it natural. We wouldn't think, oh, there's a miracle. We think, oh, there's the normal thing that always happens when we do this. Do you understand what I'm saying? So these, these signs and wonders are only signs and wonders because they stand out. And when, the, when there's no longer a standing out, it's just God's natural way of working things. Bringing people to himself. Using the good and the bad and the ugly. Using everything that we do, our worst mistakes, all to serve his purposes and his glory. God is mightily at work regardless of human agency, often despite human agency, using all of it to bring about his purposes, which in the case of his chosen people is always for their good. Believing in miracles is good. God gives signs to those who would not otherwise see and trust his work. But a high view of God, a mature Christian view of God, no longer sees the same distinction between the miraculous and the mundane. All is the powerful work of our sovereign God bringing about his purposes in us. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. And we are so desperate for your spirit to give us understanding. For while your word is perfect and has everything we need, it is the fullness of your revelation to us about who you are. We so desperately need the illumination of your Holy Spirit to help us to understand the revelation of your word. And so we ask that your word and your spirit would agree in us as we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Thank you that you understood how 
slow we can be sometimes in that you put this theme in the Bible three, at least three different times where we were meant to understand that you are sovereignly ruling through all things, even what seems to be the natural and mundane. And that all things are serving your purpose for our good and for your glory. Lord, in that incredible promise that you have granted those who belong to you, I pray that we would now walk without anxiety. I pray that we would learn to walk in patience, knowing that your timing will be perfect in all things. And Lord, that while we do pray for miracles, that we would know that what is happening now and will happen in the future is so carefully controlled and guarded by you that it cannot fail but to bring about our good and to glorify your name. Our God is not like the pagan gods. You are not playing chess with anyone. You are sovereignly ruling, causing all things to work according to your purpose. And I pray that our lives will be utterly transformed as we grow in our understanding of that amazing truth. We ask this for our good and for the glory of Christ Jesus. Amen.